My hippocampus must be so swole. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> My 90-year-old grandma playing Mario 64. That just seems <laughs> awesome. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we reveal the secrets for making your grad school application stand out from the crowd. Stay with us. We are. This is Hello PhD, episode 84. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. All right, Dan, that change up of the intro can only mean one thing. <laughs> what could that possibly mean? Star Wars week. Oh my gosh, again? Again, yeah, okay. we did this whenever the last movie came out. They're coming out more often now, that's good. That seems like it. Yeah, it was, it was uh, the 70s and then now, that's it. They did the remakes with the with the slightly upgraded special effects back in the, was that in the 90s? I think. Oh, yeah. That was a big deal for some reason. Yeah. Same movies, but with um, computer explosions. Yeah. So they'll probably remake these in about 30 years with virtual reality. Yeah, that'd be cool. Sensory experiences or something. Um, but I actually have my tickets for Thursday night, opening night. You're going to wear a costume? Um, I have a t-shirt. Yeah, close enough. That's about it. You're still a nerd. I mean, I, I do have my Stormtrooper helmet on right now, but... There's that, yeah. Dan... I am really excited. I say that every week, but I have a lot of really cool things to share with you. I would like to hear some cool things. All right. Well, first of all, we got some listener beer. Right, Listener beer via some sort of mail. Yeah. So in the mail, and actually this is funny because- They didn't send us the ingredients, did they? <laughs> no. We're not actual, making any more beer. Uh, bottles of beer, but I almost missed it because it's the holiday season and Amazon is now my go-to- all of my shopping, Christmas shopping needs, it seems like. Yeah, it, it's uh, a constant flow from the, the mail truck to your house. But actually, Dan, just to let our listeners in on, on what we're dealing with here in the studio, uh, you can see over in the corner of the studio, Dan, what's over there? It is a stack of envelopes, bags, and boxes, all with the little smiley Amazon. Yeah, that's on. right. And so I was, I was in here the other day looking for, for a particular shipment that was not a gift, and, and I noticed a postal service box that was clearly not an Amazon box. You said, get out of here, non-Amazon container. Well, I thought that was odd. So I looked at it and saw a handwritten address, a label, and realized that it was listener beer. It was not a package that I had ordered from Amazon. How many days did it sit on the radiator? Uh, not not too many. But this, stand, this is really cool. It's not just any listener beer, but this is beer from an international listener. This is from Thea, from who is a PhD student from Berlin, Germany. Awesome. Some actual German beer from Germany. That's right. Uh, and she sent us two different beers um, that I'll tell you about. Actually, she besides the beer, which was super cool, she wrote us this really nice handwritten note. Look at this. Can you read it to me? Yeah, I can read it. So here we go. It says, Dear Joshua, Dear Daniel, my name is Thea, and I'm a PhD student from Berlin, Germany. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, and I just thought you guys should try some typical German beer. It's from the very north, Flensburg, and the very south, Kempton, of Germany. If you Google these two cities, you'll see they are approximately 800 kilometers in between. I hope you like it. By the way, the bottle's lid should make a plop sound when you open it. The Flensburg company received 4 million euros of subsidy to do research on this sound to improve it. Isn't that an awesome career path for a scientist? The acoustics of beer opening. That's a job someone has. So you may not have noticed there. You may have been wondering why... These empty glasses are here, and I have not opened the beer bottle yet. Yeah, I, I thought you were holding out on me. Well, I thought we have to capture this sound on the air. Excellent. Let's do it. This 4 million euro investment. Talking about science, I would love to hear more about social sciences or even humanities in the show, since I'm writing my thesis on education slash school policy. Anyway, the podcast helps me greatly to understand why my natural science friends are the way they are. Best regards from Berlin. Greetings, Thea. <laughs> <laughs> your natural science friends are the way they are um yeah i wish i understood why my natural science friends are the way they are welcome to hello phd yep. a podcast for helping you understand why <laughs> your, your natural, natural science, science friends are, are the way they are <laughs> why are they always at work on saturdays here's why all right so i want to try to i have not opened this beer yet because i wanted to capture this four million euro sound 
Uh, <laughs> are you are you prepared? Is it going to well, spill? I'm everywhere? actually worried too because, uh, in addition, this beer has been rattling around in this box. So hopefully, it's not going to explode. Can I put on a some kind of rain parka? And and I should mention too, this is a, a Kolsch bottle. I'm moving my computer out of the right? way. That's the right terminology, no, right? Don't point it at me. <laughs> yeah, this is not a, a normal cap. This is a Kolsch bottle. He's going to bring it near my microphone. I'm moving my computer. Wow, that was awesome. <laughs> We, we, we were both cowering in fear as if someone had a firearm in the studio. That was a cool sound, though. That was amazing. That was definitely worth 4 million euros. Um, I haven't told you what we're drinking yet, uh, but you can probably see from the color. I just know how it sounds. This is this is great, Dan. This is a type of beer we don't drink a lot of. Um, this is the Flensburger Pilsner. There should be a nice, crisp, um, lighter beer. You can see it has a nice straw color to it. Tasty. It is tasty. And... It is not quite so heavy as beers that I'm accustomed to. I mean, not just IPAs, but I feel like it, it's low on some of the the kind of malty thickness. One thing I like it has a. It's definitely a lighter a lighter beer, but it has a, a little hint of that bitterness that we we enjoy from an IPA. Uh, kind of it seeps in on the back of the tongue. Um, I could really see liking this. You know, we have a lot of these Pilsner style beers, these American beers like the Budweiser, the Coors, uh, but this one has. This is probably what they originally were supposed to taste like, and then yeah. they just kind of drifted toward water. I think so, because this definitely is that lighter character, but full of flavor. It's a nice, a nice foamy head on top. This is great. This is awesome. Thank you, Thea, for expanding our horizons. Yeah, and we have, we have another beer that we're going to save for next week. So. Okay, sounds good. I'll look forward to it. All right, Dan. Got some more good news for you. It's like Christmas came early here at the Hello PhD Studios. Do I get to start opening boxes in the corner? <laughs> uh, not yet, but we got some listener beer, but we also got a new Patreon patron. Oh, that's exciting. Who was it? Wanted to say thank you to Beth, who is supporting the podcast on Patreon Thank now. you, Beth. Yeah, and, and the other thing about Beth that's cool is she is uh, really interactive with us on Twitter. So really great to, to have the listeners who we... Get to know a little bit on the Twitter sphere. We so. love the tweets and the supports. Thank you so much. Definitely. Thank you. And and that's a good reminder. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash hellophd and you can become a patron there or you can go to our website, hellophd.com and click the become a patron button. Now, Josh, are there some other ways that people, uh, scientists, grad students can part with their money, maybe giving it to the government in any way? Um well, I think the grad students, if things don't change, might be giving a lot more of it to the government. Yes. So that was my classy segue into, is there any update on the tax bill? I know that some things have changed. Yeah, so we mentioned it on our last show. There are some updates that we wanted to share. This is certainly a fluid situation, but as of today, which we're recording this on uh, December the 7th, the Senate's version of the bill did pass, and and as I think we mentioned on the last show, that version did not have the the additional taxation on tuition paid on behalf of grad students, unlike the House bill. Um, but now that both House and Senate have passed their own version, it's back to the House, it's in committee, and they're working on a compromise bill in order to hopefully draft something palatable to uh, both houses. I have to say, I understand this part of the bill making process the least. It's like there are two separate things. Yep. And somehow they get jumbled together. And does everybody revote? And there's no problem? I don't uh, understand. Yeah, I think so. The House will then revote on a compromised version of the bill. And if that passes, that version of the bill will then go to the Senate. I should know this, but I think they cut funding for social studies education at my school. Yeah, so what has happened, the House will amend the Senate version. The House will vote. If it passes the House, that bill will go to the Senate. They will vote. And if it passes there, it will go to the president's desk for signing into law. And this obviously, Dan, this is a Republican-led tax overhaul. And, and the plan the GOP has announced is they would like to get something signed by the end of this year, which is rapidly approaching. So right now is a critical time for grad students to become socially engaged. Call your representatives, call your senators, call your House of Representative members, especially right now, because now is the time when your voice can make a difference. And I believe there is there's some movement towards eliminating this bill. Actually, I don't know if you saw the stand. There were a, a handful of grad students who were arrested at the Capitol earlier this week. That's awesome. Yeah, they were they were they were protesting outside of House Speaker Paul Ryan's 
um, office and they refused to vacate and they were they were arrested. Said, Get this science out of here. <laughs> please, please call your call your congressman um, and hopefully we'll have good news to share by our next episode. Yeah, if it if it goes the wrong way, um, may I recommend moving to Germany where the beer is delicious nice and beer. Uh, they have grad programs. So that's right, worth looking into. Yeah. Josh, time for science in the news. All right, Dan, let's hear it. Dan, you're giving me a break this week. You're going to take the lead on some science in the news. I took it. I found some science. Um, Josh, do you remember, as a child, the first video game system you owned? I absolutely do. I had the original Nintendo Entertainment System that I received for Christmas in 1985. Oh, it was 85. Very good. Mm -hmm. And do you remember how you got your parents to buy it? Or did you think it came from Santa? I don't know. I don't know how it worked. So, so this is absolutely true. And kudos to my parents for this. Or I guess I could blame my parents for this. When I got the Nintendo, I had never heard of it. I didn't even know it existed. No. Yeah. So when I got it, that was the first I knew of it. Your parents knew about Nintendo before you did? I, I was five, Dan. There's, like, oh, I was, wow. Yeah, yeah, I was early. five years old. So... So I actually didn't ever ask for it. I, That's fascinating. I wonder how. I wonder why they decided to get it for you. I don't know, but I mean, good on them, right? That's great. Yeah. Well, I remember, you know, I had played Nintendo at a friend's house, and I wanted one so badly. And so, I don't. Maybe other listeners have, have tried this. Went to my parents and said, "We need to get a Nintendo because it's really going to help improve my hand-eye coordination." Like you have to come up with some reasons why your parents think well, you should play. That's impressive if you came up with that. You know, that's yeah, I think sort of data uh, driven. I think that's right. Well, I had older older siblings, so we you know we had this idea that this was going to help. I don't think my parents bought it for a second, um, but we did end up getting a Nintendo at that time. Um, but so anyway, the science I'm bringing you this week is about the effects of video games on the brain. Oh, nice. Which I you know I always assumed was terrible across the board uh so you're going to find out if your your childhood logic actually holds up under scrutiny that is exactly right actually here's a here's a funny aside on that i mentioned that i got my first nintendo from my parents for christmas guess what i asked my parents for for christmas this year is it a nintendo the super nintendo classic oh my gosh familiar, you didn't even familiar get the switch not one? the switch uh no, but i don't have any interest in that dan you know once you get to a certain age you don't want new things you just want to like relive the things the you old used things. to have yeah yeah so this uh super nintendo re-release uh with like 20 or so classic games all right well let me set this one up for you josh there is an area of the brain called the hippocampus which as you'll recall from episode 39 means horse sea monster because mm. it's shaped like a seahorse um the hippocampus is involved in short-term memory and spatial navigation. And it was observed, uh, I don't know how long ago, but um, they did studies in London taxi drivers. And they found that uh, these London taxi drivers who had memorized paths around the city had increased gray matter in their hi hippocampus. I don't know if you ever ever heard that story before. Um, I haven't heard that story, but I, um, I'm interested where you're going with this. Yeah. So uh, they found not only that those London taxi drivers had increased gray matter in the posterior hippocampus, but also that if they trained new people with the same type of training about driving around the city like that, they would see an increased amount of gray matter in the hippocampus. So part of, part of the brain involved in memory and spatial navigation. And they've taken that further. I was fascinated to learn there is a body of science that refers to the effects of Mario 64 on the brain. Oh, which I think is great. Now, see, this is this is not good because I actually skipped the 64 system uh, because I was in college and I was really busy, so I went straight from uh, Super is, Nintendo to GameCube. Yeah, but this is the is Mario 64. Yeah, it's the 3D one, right? Yeah, it introduced to a more 3D, the Golden Eye. I don't know if you remember that game. Yeah, yeah that was sort of the first person. Well, I'm sorry you missed out on it. This explains a lot about you. <laughs> um, but they've actually shown that in... Uh, they first did correlational studies linking video game play in young adults to gray matter development. And then they were able to do controlled studies showing that it was uh, by playing these 3D video games, it was actually able to increase gray matter in the hippocampus. So uh, it was a 2015 study that demonstrated young adults who trained on Super Mario 3D showed increased spatial and episodic memory performance compared to people who trained on 2D games. Okay, so now, okay, okay. I was feeling excited because what I was going to say was board games don't count josh <laughs> no what i was gonna say my, my children are now old enough we we have a, a nintendo wii i'm sure you've played the wii but on the wii you can purchase these old school games like original nintendo games like i played in the early mid 80s rot your brain 
Well, what I thought was interesting was I I broke out The Legend of Zelda, the original Legend of Zelda. The best video game franchise ever made. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I have not played this game since probably the late 80s. And I could remember the maps, right? The where the, the different dungeons were, what rock areas I could plant a bomb and a secret oh, hole. That's right. Yep. And it amazed me. I could just I'm remember picture here right now. Sadly, I know exactly what you're talking about. Which yeah. little tree yeah. to burn and a little staircase would, would be unveiled. So what I was gonna say as you're explaining this You look like was, a wizard to these kids, don't you? <laughs> exactly. Was wow, my hippocampus must be so swole (laughs) because (laughs) I could remember these 2D maps from The Legend of Zelda, but you're telling me um, that my 2D map memorization does not necessarily, it's not the same thing as this 3D spatial memory. Well, I will admit to not having gone back to read the background uh, paper in its fullness, but that was that was the conclusion that, that I took from it. So so there's this research about Mario 64, and the reason it's science in the news is because there was a new study um, out of the University of Montreal where they were interested in looking at uh, hippocampal degeneration in older adults. So a decrease in gray matter in the hippocampus is one of the, the leading signs of things like Alzheimer's and cognitive de- impairment. And so what they wanted to know is if we give older adults... Mario, will it actually improve their memory and cognition and performance by playing a video game? Seems amazing. So here's I'm just trying to imagine my 90-year-old grandma playing Mario 64. That just <laughs> seems awesome. <laughs> seems like a high bar to clear, but I don't know. Yeah, I think there was some training. So, so this a pretty small study um, done by uh, the lead authors were Greg West and Benjamin Zendel. And they had 48 subjects, broke them into three groups. So group one, number one played Mario 64, for six months. It was supposed to be about 30 minutes a day, five days a week. Another group of about 15 people took piano lessons. Boo. And another group had no contact, so they were the, the full control group. And, and they, they did a lot of work to try and control for the expectations of the researchers and things like that. But one of my favorite lines of a, of a research paper in the methods section, it says, video game training was done at home using the Nintendo Wii console system with a classic Wii Classic controller. Uh, and then two participants completed all tasks within Super Mario 64 before the completion of the six-month training period. Nice. Good for them. I know. That's what I'm thinking. You, you said, <laughs> could grandma play this? Two of the grandmas were able to beat, to beat the, game. the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah nice. Better than I did. So then they got moved on to Super Mario Galaxy, which I've never played. So that, that is great. That's cool. So they took these three groups, video games, piano, nothing, and they assessed them before and after on the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, which is a, a test of cognitive ability. Uh, they did a short-term memory test, and then they did MRI imaging, voxel-based morphometry, to measure gray matter in the hippocampus. And what they found is that video game players scored significantly better on the cognitive tests and the short-term memory tests, and they had increases in short-term memory performance that correlated with changes in the hippocampal gray matter across all the participants. But one of the things that they noticed was that correlation was more driven by the fact that in the control group, the hippocampal gray matter had degraded. So it wasn't that the people who played the video games got so much better. It's that they saw more degradation in the people who were in the control group. So wait, wait. So are you saying video games can slow aging? Well, so I'm, I'm not the saying... The of youth. Uh, so this is science. In the, the actual title of this paper was Playing Super Mario 64 Increases Hippocampal Gray Matter in older adults. Did you find this because you typed Super Mario 64 into the search line? <laughs> I think I found it on Reddit. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, but but the reason this is fun and the reason this is science in the news is because I think it's interesting to see what the news did with this research. So the, the title is about hippocampal gray matter, which doesn't play well. Here are some other titles. These are, these are articles written that refer to this. So Newsweek said, improve brain function by playing Super Mario and other video games, science says, which I think is nice. My favorite one was from inverse.com. Keep gaming forever to save your brain, scientists say. With a subtitle, playing video games is better than learning to play the piano. Take that, parents. <laughs> uh, so the, lots of hilarious, extremely overstated news article titles that make you click. It draws the clicks, but uh, still pretty cool. And uh, I think the point here is that we should be buying our parents Nintendos for Christmas. Yeah, Dan, I'm going to make sure uh, I set my mom and dad down with me Christmas morning and, and we're going to play. And then just to just answer my original question, um, I searched PubMed for Super Mario and, and found your paper and one more. Uh, no documents found for Legend of Zelda. So. Well, the questions remain. Can Legend of Zelda do anything? 
<laughs> Still a fun game. All right, Dan, we have had some really great interviews over the last few episodes and and we have a few few more um a few more interviews coming up in future episodes, but I thought just you and I could have a chat today. Do we have to? <laughs> um, well, this, Dan, is in response to a listener question that's come in. We've done all these cool interviews, and we've, I feel like we've been neglecting some of our listener emails that have, have come in. Yeah, and our, our Facebooks. I think this is where this question came from, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. This actually was a Facebook inquiry, and so that's a good reminder. You can always reach out to us, email podcast at lophd.com, but also you can send us a Facebook message, or you can reach us on Twitter at HelloPhD. This came from a listener, uh, Mario. And so Mario is a master's student in Brazil who is interested in applying for PhD programs in the United States. And have you considered Germany? <laughs> Just wait and see. Wait until the end of the year right. to give find it, out. Give it at least a month, and we'll we'll see. Um, so so what he said was, I'm a master's student in Brazil, and I intend to pursue a PhD in the U.S. And I was wondering what steps in the admissions process are critical. I don't know what emphasis grad schools put on the GRE, but this test is especially challenging for a non-native speaker. I thought, this actually reminded me, this is a topic that I don't believe we've covered. We talk a lot about graduate school, and we've certainly talked about the GRE, but we haven't talked about the admission process for science-based PhD programs. And yeah, it's a weird thing. If you go uh, to look at the requirements uh, for a grad program, you will see the GRE probably prominently listed. And then how do you know what other things are important Um you can make a CV or a resume, but does anybody look at that? And there's a cover letter, but what sh- I don't know, you know, I don't think it's obvious what all of those things should say. Probably worth noting that you get a lot of applications. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, we do. And 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 also, but beyond that, Dan, you know, there's this list of requirements, but I think it's hard for applicants to know are all of these pieces of the application equally important, or is there sort of a relative? Um, sort of relative weight that each of these application metrics receives from a committee. And so I thought this was an interesting topic because this is a topic I actually think a lot about and know a lot about in my job that pays. (laughs) Yeah, and it is no secret that you have advocated for the end of the GRE as a requirement. So what is it you want to know when you're you're looking? Yeah, that's true. And, And it's important to note there are a lot of pieces of the application um, besides the GRE that are very important and in a lot of ways more important. And so so what I do is I work in an office that does PhD admissions. Um, and I even run a program for students who want to go to grad school. And one thing that's been been really informative in my job is I get to actually sit in on admissions committee meetings for our PhD program. I've kind of seen behind the scenes what what faculty are looking for um, and what types of things jump out at them. Uh, is it either being really good or really bad? in PhD applications. And so what I thought I could do is peel the curtain back a little bit and give some information for our listeners who are either applying for grad school now or thinking about applying for graduate school in the future. The number one thing that I'll say off the bat is the number one most important thing for being competitive for science graduate programs, science PhD programs, is research experience. You have to have it and it's really not just having it, but how you describe it or leverage that experience in your application that matters. Would you say that if someone had an application and they showed no, um, so maybe they took labs for chemistry and biology in their classes, but if they had no um, day-to-day experience in a lab and a project that you would just say, no chance? It's going to be really hard, Dan. You, you mentioned that that it is a competitive process, and that is true. Uh, a lot of competitive programs will get many more applications than they actually have spots. And and if you think about what PhD programs are, predominantly they are research programs. Most of what you're doing is working in the lab. So what admissions committees are doing is more than looking at your academics, looking at, oh, Dan looks like a really great student. He had really nice grades and test scores. What they really want to know is, is this? do we think this person has potential in the lab as a researcher? And so evidence of you actually doing that is, is what's going to be helpful. So, so one thing I like about graduate admissions compared to something like medical school admissions or pharmacy admissions is those tend to be a little more academic and quantitative. So they're looking at test scores and grades. 
But I feel like PhD admissions is a little more, by its very nature, holistic and looking at your experiences much more than, than just your numbers. So let's just break down some of these, these components, um, knowing from the backdrop that the experience you have is the most important thing. So the first stand, you mentioned it, is the CV, all right? And you've probably put a CV together. I have. I've also put a resume together. Yeah, I don't know what the true. difference is, really, yeah, except yeah. one's shorter. Well, a lot of people don't know the difference, but there is a difference. So the CV is kind of the academia version of the resume, but it is decidedly not a resume. And so here's the difference. With a resume, one of the things you want to list is you want to list some specific skills that you have. And, and that kind of makes sense when you think about what a resume is used for. A resume is used to apply for a job. And so if you're applying for a job, Dan, there's probably a specific task or tasks that your employer wants you to be able to do. So from looking at your resume, they want to have some confidence that if I hire Dan for this job I need done, he has the skills to do that job. Yeah, and usually that's in the form of, I have done this job before in these different ways. No, but nobody puts a job description. It's like, come hang out with us, do a bunch of things, whatever feels good. You don't need a resume that, for that's that. That's exactly right. But a CV, there's no need to list those specific skills because you're not being hired for a specific job. Admissions committee wants to know if you have experience doing research in general, if you have some potential for thinking about problems, identifying questions. Um, in fact, they don't even know what type of research and specific skills you're going to use in the lab you ultimately join. So I don't need to list. I can do PCR and RT-PCR. And I, it's not and a list. Yeah, exactly. No, no you, you don't. And, Keep and some, adding letters. And some people do put that on there, but you don't need to. And you probably shouldn't take up the space, I would guess. Yeah, you're just you're just making it harder to find the information that they do want to see. And that is your education should come first. So where you went to school, the degrees you got, and everything on here goes from newest to oldest. And then after your education, you want to list your research experience. And this is really, this is really what admissions committees are looking for when they look at your CV. Where'd you go to school and what research have you done? So you want to make it really easy for them to see that. So really uh, concretely, if you are an undergrad or a master's student, Find time now to to volunteer or to work or get a part-time job in a lab in the field that you want to, to do work. Because this is an opportunity where people will accept you into their lab with very few questions asked. Mm -hmm. um, if you have graduated or you're about to graduate, then I think this is an opportunity to go apply for either a tech job or something related. Maybe you have no experience as an undergrad in research because it was a small school or they just didn't have programs available or you've changed your mind. Now's the time to take a few years off, go work, and get that experience under your belt. Yeah, and the, you know, the beauty of that is twofold because one, that's what's going to make you the most competitive for PhD programs, but also that's how you're going to really know if going to grad school is what you want to do. Because Yeah, reading, reading about the discovery of penicillin, exciting. Discovering penicillin, probably really, really boring, or you know, it depends on your... your personal style, but the doing of the work is different from the description of the end result, I think. Yeah, and actually I told a, a student I was talking to just today who's applying for graduate school, you know, I think it's really important at the point of when you're ready to apply to grad school that you really love working in the lab. Uh, now, that doesn't mean very few people actually work in the lab long term for their career. Some do, but most don't, and that's okay. But at the time you start grad school, you hopefully really like working in the lab because that is what you're going to be doing day in and day out in graduate school. Um, but you're absolutely right, Dan. Number one thing, go get some experience. And and that's something maybe we could talk about either later on this show or, or in a different show of how you do that. But on this CV, you're going to list that research experience that you have or that you're going to get. Uh, but then also list any papers you have. If you happen to be an author already on a paper, that is awesome. Um, a lot of people, when they're just applying to grad school, don't have authorships yet. So if you have even a middle authorship on a paper, that's great. Put it on there. So it's not required that you have a paper? No, not required at all. But if you have one, certainly that's where you want to put it. Then any relevant presentations that you've done, any grants you've received, make sure that's on there. Grants probably look great because if you can write a grant and, and receive a grant that makes you very attractive to a PI who maybe wants to support you but doesn't have to take money out of their own grant. Yeah, absolutely. And nobody expects as an undergrad or a master's student, you got an R01. But, you know, even if you got some internal funding from your institution or maybe you got a travel award to go to a meeting, put that on there. That's something you earned. And, and that's a good, um, a good thing to be proud of and list on your CV. And then last, uh, sometimes people will put 
some additional things like volunteer experience or work experience that's not lab related. Um, I don't think you need non-academic things, but volunteer experience can be good, especially if it's related to something scientific. So maybe you did some tutoring or you did some science outreach. That can be useful to put on your application. But also if you held any leadership roles, that can be be useful um, and can boost your application. Idea for a future show. We don't have time for it now, but it'd be fun to get a bunch of CVs that you've actually seen mm. and go through and, and identify the ones that are easy to find what you want to know and make a decision and are written well and make you say, yes, this person is ready versus the ones that maybe the, the person is perfectly prepared, but the way they composed the CV was not effective. So it's, it's kind of a, how do you make this CV work for you? That sounds interesting. Tweet to us, write to us, let us know, and we'll, we'll try and put it together. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the CV, Dan. So really what you're doing is you're just making it very easy for the committee to see what they want to see. And that is where you went to school, but especially what research you did for how long and generally what you worked on. So now your personal statement, this is where you really flesh out that information that was on your CV. This is a point that I have seen creates a lot of confusion and a lot of trepidation from the applicant because, I mean, you could see yourself, Dan, this is where you have to write some some narrative, Dan, explain to me everything about yourself and why we should accept you in two pages. I can still remember aspects of my personal statement, and it is so embarrassing to me now. <laughs> it would be fun for us to dig up our personal statements for graduate oh, school it was and read just, them. Yeah, just the hindsight of knowing how grad school was for me and how difficult it was for me. But in my in my personal statement, it was so positive about how perfectly suited I was to this work. Turns out. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty. There it is. But in this personal statement, the, the key here is don't overthink it. So there are three, I'm going to say three non-negotiable things that, that you need to have in your personal statement. The first is you absolutely need to have a description of the research you've done. I've actually seen personal statements that talk a lot about the personal part, about your story, how you grew up, and uh, what you're interested in, but no description of research you've done, and that's bad, because one of the main things admissions committees are trying to get out of your personal statement is that that research experience you listed on your CV, you actually understood what was going on there, and so your personal statement is where you have the opportunity to explain the project that you worked on. What was your contribution? What was the big picture? Yeah, I would say that uh, be quite sure that what you write you understand because if you do get called in for an interview i have to imagine the first thing that the interviewers will ask you about is what you wrote there you know you typically go around to different labs to different investigators they sit down with you to explain what they do but they also have your application with them and of course they're going to want to talk to you about your science so don't take the risk of putting down something you heard the postdoc say in your lab that you don't have an idea what it is because that's a, a path to being very embarrassed. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and you know, when you eventually transition into doing interviews, that's the lion's share of what you're going to be doing in those interviews is talking about the research that you're writing about in your statement. So in these research descriptions, this is not a place to use the word microliter at all. These are not detailed method sections of your Just research. talk about leaders. <laughs> uh, but this is... Big picture, what does the lab do? What was your project, the hypothesis? Generally, what methods did you use? Any conclusions? But, but more, what did you do? And, you know, really the personal statement for graduate school is maybe the only time scientifically where you actually say, I did this or I did that. Often we try to stay away from the word it I. It was found that. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Here you can, you can actually say, my project was to do this. I did these experiments and I figured this out Um, because this is about you. You're selling you here. So make sure it's clear what your contribution was. So besides your research description, the second thing is why you want to go to grad school in the first place. Uh, Why are you applying? Hopefully you know the answer to that (laughs) at this point. Uh, That's something that you should think about before you apply to grad school. I don't want to get a job. (laughs) This is the only way that in this economy. Wrong, wrong answer. Uh, I didn't get into med school, so I decided to apply to grad school. I've been kicked out of 14 other programs, and this is the last one that I'm allowed to. <laughs> uh, so you, so you want to have a good answer for why you want to go. And then the last thing is, why is 
the school that you're applying to a good fit for you. And being specific is good here. So even including some faculty. Best football team. (laughs) Is that a good answer? Uh, Probably not a good answer. So what you want to do is hopefully in your research statement, you've talked a little bit about the work you've done. You've talked a little bit about what some of your interests are. And then you want to pair that with what that school actually does. So you can list some specific faculty that are doing that type of work or or some programs that 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 school has. Name dropping is okay. Maybe there's a connection that you have there. Somebody you met at a meeting. You want to make it appear that I didn't just copy and paste this personal statement to eight different schools and here's your copy. Yeah, let me ask Josh. There is a tendency for some people to apply to 1,500 different programs. And at that point, you don't have the chance to learn about them. You're just, it's copy-paste, copy-paste, copy-paste. Do you recommend the buckshot approach like that? Or, or would you say, actually make sure you understand the program before you apply? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. And it's a lot of work to apply to each individual school. It should be, technically. I yeah, think. And, and in a lot of cases, it costs money too, right? It can... Their application fees for each school. So what you don't want to do, what you want to avoid doing is what you just said. You don't want to just apply to a broad swath of schools without really knowing if they're a good fit for you. Any school you apply to is a school you should hopefully be interested in actually going to. And 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 the number one thing you should be looking at, we mentioned the research is experience it, the research is important. There should be at least two, three, four faculty doing work there that you think is interesting. How many schools did you apply to? I think I applied to five or six. Five, maybe? Not not actually, probably too few, but I applied, I think, to five. I applied to two. Yeah, that's too few. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think seven is a good number. That's what I advise a lot of a lot of my students. But that's that's a lot of work you're talking about, to understand it the is. program, the faculty, the the different research going on what that city might be like, things like that. That's that's a lot of work. So no, it is. wouldn't do mo- too many more than that. No, I wouldn't do too many more than that. But, but then the, la- the last thing maybe you, you can add in addition, so we talked about the three main things. Um, but if there's something unique about you, make sure you include that in your in your statement, especially if it demonstrates some important qualities about you. So maybe you... I have six arms, <laughs> I can pipette faster than anyone. <laughs> what do you mean unique about do me? do the work of three graduate yeah. students. Uh, you know, maybe you've overcome something challenging in your life. Maybe you were a varsity track runner, right? Something that demonstrates some qualities about you and who you are that you could leverage into strengths as a graduate student or in the lab. But also, maybe there's a weakness on your application, maybe, and we'll, we'll get into this, but maybe you've got a couple grades that weren't so great, or your GRE score is a little bit low. The committee's going to see that, so don't hide from it. But go ahead and just address it up front. Say, you know, I realize my score is a little bit low on the GRE, but that's not an indicator of my ability in the lab you can see from my experience you know things like that so you don't need to hide it and and hope that they don't see it because they will they may as well talk about why it happened or what it is exactly and so so that's a good transition into the letters of recommendation so this is the the last piece that that also has to do with your research experience and so the best applications are going to have that description of the research in the personal statement that's going to that's going to be really flesh out that experience that's listed on the CV but hopefully that will be paired with a nice letter recommendation from the advisor who you worked with doing that research experience so really the key thing to mention with letters of recommendation are that those letters need to be from the research advisors the faculty research advisors that you worked with. A common mistake that I see very often is applicants will list research experience on their CV, but then when you go to look at the letters of recommendation, there won't be a letter from the advisor of that lab. And, And for better or worse, what happens in that case is the admissions committee will then assume that it must not have gone well, which is why there's not a letter from the faculty member. What if it didn't go well? That's a good, that's a good question. Because that happens. That does happen. And in that case, hopefully you have some other research experience that went a little better. I assume if the only research experience you ever had went bad, you probably wouldn't be applying to grad school. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, it's possible. I can just imagine situations. Things happen. We, sure. We've heard enough stories about PIs and students that... Uh, and, and particularly if you're coming right out of undergrad, maybe you've only worked in one lab. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's an opportunity to go work in another lab. I don't know. But uh, it, it seems like there will be people out there that had uh, maybe a good experience. They understood what, what science is and that research was good. But the PI was 
you know, standoffish or they, you know, w- when you ask for a letter of recommendation, I've, I've gotten the advice and I think it's the right advice to not say, could you write me a letter of recommendation? It's to say, can you write me a strong letter of recommendation? Because that gives them a way, an understanding between the two of you that you're not looking for, please tell all my terrible qualities to this place. Um, it says, as you understand it, was I good enough that you could recommend me? And that is very different. So it, it gives an opportunity for them to say, well, actually, you know, I think you should probably talk to somebody else about that or maybe talk to you about what they thought went wrong. But what you don't want is that sealed envelope with bad news in it. So avoid that. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dan. That's perfect advice. You know, what, what you want to do is if your your plan is to go to graduate school, that's a good time for you to maybe if you maybe you have an ongoing relationship with your research advisor, maybe it's a lab you're currently in. Make sure your research advisor knows that those are your plans um, and, and you're talking about that direction you're moving in as you go. Maybe it's somebody you worked with two summers ago. Well, it's important to at least keep touch with that person and say, hey, you know, I really got a lot out of that research experience. It was my very first one because also faculty, they kind of adjust the bar depending on how much experience you have. So if you're brand new, you've never held pipettes before, the expectation they're going to have for you if you really just show up regularly and and seem eager, that's going to be good enough. But as you progress through your undergrad or in a master's program, keep in touch and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm doing now. I'm doing this additional research. I'm hoping to apply to these types of programs. Could you write me a strong letter? And most of the time, they'll be happy to. And your point here is do everything you can to make sure it is from your research advisor, not your babysitter, not your priest, not Yeah, and, and not, your, not your organic chemistry professor, because those letters, oftentimes, this is literally what they say, Dan. They say, Dan was a student in my organic chemistry class. I had about 75 students, and I see that he he got a B plus on the first exam. And they literally, you can tell they're looking through an Excel spreadsheet and just regurgitating the info that I could probably get from your transcript. That's one of those one-sided relationships. Like, like when you read enough about a celebrity, you know a lot about them that they never heard of you. You sit in a large classroom you know the chemistry professor and you might go to office hours once and think, oh, we had, you know, he really understood how smart I am. He has no idea who you are. And, and sometimes students, I think they do think, well, you know, so-and-so academic advisor, they actually know me better than this PI that I worked for last summer. And while that may be true, they may interact with you more regularly. The way that they have interacted with you, the information they can relay is not as useful as the information from someone who's worked with you in the lab. So you want to make sure if you've worked in a lab, if at all possible, get letters from those folks. Yeah, they need to know your work. Okay, what's next? All right. So all of this, this these are all the really important parts that have to do with research experience. But there are a couple other parts um, that are not unimportant, but I would say they're less important. Uh, The next is the transcript. So this is your grades. And, and I often tell students this is the one part of your application that you, you can't really impact all that much after you graduate. So uh, one, once you graduate with your GPA, it is what it is. Your transcript is what it is. So if you're still in class right now, do the best you can, <laughs> especially your, your science classes, because now is the only time you're really going to be able to impact those grades. Um, but, but it's important to realize that more important than just that GPA number is the trajectory of your grades. So admissions committees, people reviewing your application, they actually do look over this thing. They don't just look at the GPA, but they dig in a little bit. And what they're looking for are whether or not you actually took classes that are relevant to the type of program you're applying to and what are the grades you got in those classes, but also did you finish strong? Uh, Most people really do sympathize with somebody who maybe had a rough freshman year, but by the time they were senior, the GPA kind of improved. Uh, That's a very common experience. So finishing strong can be great. But as I mentioned before, Dan, if you happen to have a bad grade, maybe Orgo 2, just you did not agree with that professor. It was not a good it was not a good experience. Don't hide from that. Just own it. Explain it. Maybe you had something personal going on during that semester that led to your grades being a little down. That's a good place for you to control the narrative that, that your transcript might tell. Biochemistry. That was my... Was it? That was my downfall. What happened? <laughs> not, nothing happened. <laughs> just That was not my favorite class. 
Yeah, I had a terrible biochemistry professor. I should tell that story sometime. It's tough to have a good one. I don't know. Um, and then the last thing, Dan, is the GRE. We've talked about the GRE a lot. We've mentioned that a number of schools, a number of PhD programs are actually decreasing their reliance on the GRE or even dropping it. But it's still certainly around and something that you do have to think about. So my advice would be do study for it. There, there's some information out there. People who are proponents of the GRE will say, well, it's a great test because you can't really uh, you can't really prepare for it, right? You're just you have this innate ability. The score is what it is, but that's just false, patently false, Dan. And I know that because I teach GRE. I've collected data on students before and after taking GRE prep. So um, you can improve your score, especially on the math section, um, which tends to be the score that science admissions committees look at more heavily is that quantitative score. Um, so do take the time to study. Do a lot of programs require the subject tests or not so much? You know, not many anymore. A few do. And this could, now this could be a little different in chemistry programs, physics programs, although I have seen even a number of physics programs are, are eliminating both subject and general GRE. Um, and but, you will not sleep until they all do. <laughs> I won't, Dan. I'm out there fighting for you all. So so yeah, the GRE, it's there. It's something you have to do. Do put some time in. Um, but you know, if you take it, you do your best, you paid your 300 bucks, and the score you know is a little bit below the average of schools you want to go to, don't let that hold you back because... It truly is, especially with PhD programs, it is one of the lesser important things. It's you know we it shouldn't rule you out. From no, that it should absolutely not. And and we take students all the time who have GRE scores that are far below average, but they have great experience. They're doing well in the lab. Relatedly, what does an application cost now? You know, a lot of places, I would say, a typical application probably costs in the uh, fifty to. $100 range, 75 maybe. Okay, so if you're applying to six or seven schools, this can get pretty pricey. Yeah, it can get a little pricey. I will say, Dan, there are some schools that have free applications. Sometimes these tend to be uh, private schools will often have free applications. So, so just check around. Also, sometimes programs will offer fee waivers. If you're part of an underrepresented group or you come from a socioeconomic background that's disadvantaged, you can sometimes inquire about fee waivers from schools too. And any tips for international students like the person who asked? Yeah, so so one key thing to realize is it's there are some considerations for being an international student. As we've talked about the last two weeks because of this tax law, in PhD programs in the sciences, the program typically pays your tuition on your behalf. And, and a lot of times there are mechanisms that the uh, university can use to get grants that actually will, federal grants from the NIH or NSF, that will cover your tuition so that your lab or the, or the institution doesn't have to pay them. The problem is that as an international student, you will never be able to get in-state tuition. So if you're at a public school, um, you're always going to have the expensive tuition. And oftentimes you're not eligible for spots on these training grants, for example. So you have the tendency as an international student to be a little more expensive than a domestic applicant in the United States might be. And because of that, PhD programs will often limit the number of international students that they accept into their program. Um, so you should know that as an international applicant, at a lot of places, you're not just competing against the whole pool, um, but you're competing for an even smaller number of slots that are designated for international applicants. So um, this is something you should maybe inquire about at the schools you're thinking about applying to because your mileage may vary um, in the number of international spots that they, they actually take in. And a question you can ask is you could actually ask a program on average, how many international students do they take in each class out of how many international applicants do they usually get? Super advice. Do we miss anything? I think we covered it all, Dan. This was a lot. All right. Well, out there, listeners, if you have recently applied and we missed something that was really important um, that you thought was in your application. If you have some advice that you'd like us to share, please find us on Twitter. We're at HelloPhD on Facebook. Uh, or you can email us, podcast at HelloPhD.com. We'd love to have your feedback. And we will be happy to share it with other people actually applying to start this life that you're in the middle of. And you can sleep well knowing that we will be here with you. <laughs> all during your PhD training. That's right. Thanks, Josh. And it's time for the etymology puzzle. All right, Dan, what do you have for us? The clue last time was a Thanksgiving-related theme. Top this humble root with marshmallows, and it is fit to serve a child of God. I grew up eating 
this vegetable this way. Okay. Sweet potato. Oh, so close. No. Yam. It is a yam. Is that, the, are, is that the same thing? They're different things. Totally different uh, genuses. And so the answer was yam. The genus of the yam plant is Dioscoria. And that comes from uh, the Latin roots. I guess Greek roots. Forgive me. Dios, Dios. Uh, so that was Zeus, God. And Coria, which is a boy, a youth, a soldier, or son. So I, I translated that into child. So child of God, Dios Coria. This was, the plant was named after a Greek physician and botanist who wrote a five-volume encyclopedia about herbal medicine, and his name was Dioscorides. So uh, the root vegetable took its name from that particular person. So you said, so the sweet potato is different. It is a totally, the sweet potato is Epimoia batatas, which is a totally different plant. But they taste similar. Did What did you grow up eating? Yeah, I, I'm sure it was sweet potatoes. I think in the United States, we call sweet potatoes yams. But, but it's all sweet potatoes. They're different They're different vegetables. I had some sweet potato fries for lunch yesterday. They were delicious. They weren't yam fries, though, which would be know. even more awesome on the menu. I like the word yam. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. So you did eat some. I'm glad to hear that. I did. I certainly did, yeah. And they had marshmallows on. All right. And the word yam comes from uh, either Portuguese or Spanish. Enye, A-M-E. Yam. How do you pronounce enye? Yam. Yeah. That's what cars say when they drive yeah, by. <laughs> it is, uh, the, the main derivations borrow from verbs meaning to eat. So kind of goes together. There you go. You nice eat, Thanksgiving. You eat the eats. Yep. Nice Thanksgiving okay. theme. Let me give you the clue for this week, Josh. Don't swat this genus of woodcutting insect. It is an important pollinator. I'll read it one more time. Don't swat this genus of woodcutting insect. It is an important pollinator. Remember, we're looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word as a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com, and we'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right. Well, if you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes, or send us a handwritten card. We love the feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show, and it makes our day. Attach the card to a beer. (laughs) If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron, just like Beth did. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money. All right, Dan, I'm going to get out of here and try to avoid some Star Wars spoilers before Thursday night. I'm going to call you in the middle of the night and read them out loud. All right, Dan, let's claw our way out of all these Amazon boxes. All right, you're not going to do a Yoda impression for the uh, season? See you next week, we will. (laughs) All right, we'll see you next time. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week... What are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) Something felt wrong. You stay off my lines. (laughs) Something felt wrong. I was like, what's wrong with this? This feels weird. Nailed it. (laughs) Um, Take two. Here we go.